0: Welcome to Common Ground with Bill Walton. Featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics, and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome. I'm here today to talk about economic policy. Specifically, let's talk about uh, the Paris Treaty, tax reform, uh, Dodd-Frank and... Trump's plan to reorganize the government. Joining me today are two policy experts from the Heritage Foundation, Jack Spencer, and Norbert Michel. Uh, they're both uh, been a long time with the uh, uh, with Heritage, and uh, Jack is now as a vice president and an expert on a wide range of domestic, economic, and trade issues uh, for the Institute of Economic Freedom and Opportunity. Uh, previously served as director of the Rowe Institute, where he spearheaded research initiatives on federal spending, taxes, regulation, energy, and the environment. And before that, and I think this is really his power alley, specialized in nuclear energy issues in both domestic and global arenas. As Heritage's senior research fellow in nuclear energy uh, policy. Uh, he's his, Heritage's go-to expert in nuclear waste management, technological advances, industry subsidies, and international approaches to nuclear energy. Welcome, Jack.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: Uh, Norbert is uh, with Heritage as a uh, research fellow in financial regulations. He studies and writes about financial markets, tax policy, monetary policy. He also focuses on the best way or the, to address difficulties with the large financial companies, a.k.a. banks and insurance companies, uh, and also is an expert in the too-big-to-fail problem. Uh, before Heritage, he was a tenured professor at Nickel State University College, a business in, where he taught finance, economics, and statistics. Uh, Norbert also served with me in the Trump transition. Uh, he was in the uh, financial services policy implementation team, and together we got a firsthand look at what the Trump plans were for economic growth. Uh, He also has some private sector experience, where he uh, worked for Intergy, where he built regression models to help predict business bankruptcies. I'll be interested in learning more about that if we get time.
2: It sounds so much better. (laughs) Welcome. (laughs) Thank you. Uh,
0: Well, as as we're here in uh, Studio B, our our speakeasy studio. the Paris Treaty is in the news, and yeah. Jack, would you talk a little bit about what that means for us and yeah, that, why we think that's a good thing, that we're opted out of it, rather than a bad thing?
1: I'd love to. I mean, Norbert, as you know, this this treaty, just being around heritage, it's a, it's a big issue for us. And this, well, it's not really a treaty, it's an accord, it's an, an attachment to a, a, a different um, agreement. And this accord, the, the purpose of it was to um, achieve an environmental goal, and um, to do it in an economically uh, reasonable way. But that didn't achieve either of those things. That really is the crux of the problem. That even if we followed to the T the, uh, the the provisions of the Paris Accord, you wouldn't have gotten the CO2 drops that would have been necessary to get the climate change impact, assuming you believe the models that the UN uses to determine such things. So on a whole a whole array of bases it just didn't make sense that doesn't even get into the economics of it where it really set up this whole mechanism that would drive our economy um, to move away from affordable energy sources that the, the the very energy sources that allowed mass swaths of humanity to lift themselves up out of poverty away from those to these ones that the government wants That cost more money, that are less efficient. Well,
0: you mean moving away from fossil fuels to renewable?
1: Um, Yes, but not exclusively. Um, So we use renewables all the time, like hydro, for example. Um, I would argue you you mentioned in in the um, introduction my background in nuclear energy, and nuclear is not a traditional renewable, but it certainly has all the characteristics of what those who claim to want to reduce CO two should want to achieve its emissions free. It does a lot of things. And, and, and the Paris Treaty didn't allow, didn't make the, uh, the policy adjustments that would allow us to move in that direction. So just for a lot of reasons, it didn't make economic sense. It didn't make um, environmental sense. Here's what it made sense for. People who want to control the economy and control our lives. For the central planners, this was a great, uh, a, a great accord.
0: So are there market-based solutions now that we've pulled out? I mean, will the, will, sure. you know, my, I, I'm struck by the fact that our air is a lot cleaner and our water is yeah. a lot purer than it was 20, 25, 30 years ago. We've made a lot of progress already. I mean, is yeah. the marginal? are you saying basically the marginal cost of improvement is not worth the, the economic cost?
1: Well, What I would say is that the, the free market actually promotes the things that, that we hold value, put a high value on. The free market promotes efficiency. The free market promotes clean air and clean water. We, as people who have the wherewithal, um, have the resources to clean up our water, to clean up our air. The United States is a great example of that. We have clean water and clean air because we're economically prosperous. Look at countries like Um, like China or the Soviet Union or Cuba, where you have the least economic freedom, North Korea. Those are the ones who have the least clean environments, because these are folks that don't have the wherewithal to make the investments, to have the clean air, clean water, and all the things that that we hold dear. It's private property rights that ultimately um, incentivize the stewardship that yields the environmental outcomes that we want. The Paris Accord rejects the notion that private property rights and stewardship is the way— to meet our environmental needs, and government control is the way to do that. And wasn't it also
0: disproportionately uh, harsh with our uh, our, our standards, and, and like, for example, didn't China have to abide by some standards that their emissions could grow less slowly, less slowly than they already were, or more slowly than they were, but not reduce them?
1: So, so those countries who were less developed had different standards to hold to than those of us who are more developed. Now, the the perverseness of this is that those are, those countries, um, this mindset tries to put onto them um, these renewables and these more expensive technologies. Now, they are allowed to they were allowed to emit more, but it pushes them into this more expensive direction. And 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 that's one of the real problems with this whole approach is you know. You, Bill, or Norbert, or I, upper middle class, middle class Americans, we can handle a few bucks extra for a washing machine or our bread. But who this really hits the hardest is the poorest Americans. When you go to the store now, you can't buy a washing machine anymore for $300. Everything costs $600. That's a direct result not of Paris, but of the global warming mindset. It's the DOE regulations on things like washing machines that are based on the social so-called social cost of carbon that's where these regulations are promulgated from that drive up the cost of the consumer products that folks the poor folks just can't afford Norbert, what's Focus your
2: take on jack? that well and I, jack you tell me if you don't agree but i mean this is sort of like the condescending theme that runs through a lot of what we do uh, i deal with this in financial market stuff all we the had time. we had heritage yeah. yes yes, yeah. yes. Um, you you see the progressives wanting to control things in 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 say like in financial markets where they say well you know that's not good for you that's not that's not okay for you it's okay for me to do it if if i want to do it but it's not okay for you to do it and you know you don't have um, you don't want to let those other people have products and you say thing or that not you me but they'll say things like well it's not okay for those those groups to have uh, access to the same types of credit that I have, we have to give them something else. So this was and what
0: this was what what Trump ran on then. Oh and yeah, he basically said the policies that are good for the elites are not good for the rest of the country, right. and the Paris Treaty was Exhibit A of a yes. policy that the elites liked and the, and the rest of the country did not. That's exactly now, I've read in the Times and the Economist the world is now coming to an end because of withdrawing from the Paris Accord. Uh, What's really going to happen? I mean, what's the practical effect of uh, us not going
1: forward with uh, the Paris people? Well, from an environmental standpoint, that was what I was saying. There will be none because there's nothing in the Paris Accord that would have yielded the outcomes that the global warming alarmists wanted to achieve. Um, So even based on their models, their predictions— pulling out of the accord will have no impact. Now, I will argue will have a positive environmental impact because it gives us more economic wherewithal to adapt to whatever the environment brings in the future, whether it's um, something caused by global warming, which I, I I don't think that that's the case, or however we... we, we well, Whatever the world... Uh, is. Well, as, as
0: I like to say, I think we're all environmentalists now. It's just a question of the cost-benefit of each thing. Mm-hmm. And if you've got 99.9% of something accomplished, what's that cost of the extra one-tenth of one percent? And that's sort of what we're talking about. Yeah,
2: probably so. And there's this attitude of if we don't have the regulation in place, uh, you know, American companies are going to start polluting rivers and poisoning the water, which it doesn't really work that way. Uh, that's, that's not what people want to do.
0: Well, I, I, it's hard to it's, uh anyway, we, we will go forward, and I think we'll hopefully, I mean, does, does Heritage have uh, an economic, uh, or I'm sorry, an environmental policy plan? I mean, do you have something mm-hmm. outlined? What would that be? Yeah, I mean, what would be a free market uh,
1: alternative to something like the Paris Accord? We believe in private property rights and stewardship, that an individual's owning um, property provides the right incentives to, um, to protect that, we think that prosperity gives society the wherewithal to uh, to protect water and air and and those sorts of things. Now, cent- so, so that's the underlying philosophy of our approach to the environment. But that, now we've had since since the early seventies layer upon layer of environmental regulation. So we have a regulatory rollback piece of that that would fin- fit under the. Rubric of our environmental policy. What's an example of what might be rolled back? Um, NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, which is a one, uh, it's a very short bill, um, but it has led to reams and reams and reams of paperwork in order to do any project that the government that the federal government has any involvement in. So we think that that's something that needs to be rolled way back, especially when the president's trying to do things like infrastructure and 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 those types of things are or plants, power plants. Um, those are all projects that require a NEPA report to be done, so we need to, to roll that back. One of the things just quickly that has given the um, the environmentalists a lot of leeway is in a lot of the regulations, we've seeded Congress has seeded a lot of the defining how what those regulations look like. At, to the bureaucrats. So, for example, the Clean Water Act, which, um, you know, it, it, it gives to the bureaucrats the ability to define what falls under the jurisdiction of the EPA under the Clean Water Act. And, of course, the bureaucrats want to widen their control as much as they can. So
0: what, what you're saying is Congress should be writing very specific bills to say we'll do this or do that and make it part of the democratic process. Yes. And when you delegate it to an administrative uh, agency,
1: you basically have taken out of that. Uh, you've taken that out of the process, right? And you get what we have now, which is this expanding administrative state, which has all of the um, problems that that we as free marketers would would, would argue. Well, I about. want to come
0: back to what we mean by the administrative state, but nor you talked about this creeping uh, uh, regulatory whatever in terms of the financial markets, and that's really your power alley. Yeah. Uh, We've got a bill. In fact, Heritage has written a report called uh, "The Case Against Dodd Frank," and it's about 300 pages long. I think you've edited this. And first, what is Dodd Frank, and what's the case against it in less than 350? (laughs) I'm sorry, not 350 words, 350 pages, pages. Pages. Maybe you can do it in 350 words. <laughs> I might. I can okay. definitely do it
2: in less than 350 pages. Okay, now. thank you. Um, so Dodd-Frank is the, I, I like to call this the, uh, the financial world's version of Obamacare, just for sort of a point of reference. And what Dodd-Frank was, was a law that was passed in 2010 in response to the 2008 financial crisis. And it's pitched as a, a bill that ended bailouts and made our financial system safer. But in truth, that's not what it did. Uh, what it essentially is a, an amalgamation of a whole bunch of different policies that liberal progressives have wanted to enact for years, never had the opportunity to do, uh, and then they exploited that crisis. I think it was Rahm Emanuel who said, you know, never, let a, never, never let a crisis go to waste or something like that. And that's what they did. So they compiled all these things that don't really address the root causes of the crisis, but that pile regulation upon regulation upon regulation uh, throughout the financial system uh, in ways that we haven't had before. And I think a lot of people would argue have, have harmed economic growth. Uh, harmed the recovery at, le- at the very well, least and slow uh, down economic growth.
0: Peter Wallison at the other think tank in town, yes. uh, AEI, says it's- uh, Who contributed to the book. I think he's- yes. I think you gave him the first chapter. I believe fact. we did, yeah. Um, he, he says it's based on a false narrative oh, it absolutely of what happened- Oh, it absolutely that is. It caused the crash. Absolutely. And the false narrative is that somehow that was always because of the big banks being greedy and, and things like that. Deregulated deregulated. Which well, is, in fact, they've, they get, they've had more regulation every year since, yes. uh, uh, since I can remember. Oh, um, yeah. no. But that the root causes were we had government policies that were promoting unaffordable housing oh, yeah. or affordable housing, whichever way you wanted to put it. And, yeah. and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were about 50, 55, 60% of the, of their book, um, were sub what were we called, subprime loans. And so we had this incredible bubble of people borrowing money that couldn't afford it. Oh, yeah. Uh,
2: it, in you, you have uh, a massive run-up in home prices largely because you're financing too much of it. You know, and, and, and financial markets, as you know, Bill, uh, wouldn't be financing so much of it well, if they weren't being incentivized to well, do Well, the rating that. agencies, uh,
0: the credit rating agencies, had models that predicted that housing prices would never fall. Because they hadn't fallen up until then. Yes, and, and and everybody,
2: Wall Street's models were built on those, uh on those predictions. Oh yeah, and so two things there. Of course, and I would, I go, I'll go out on a limb and say that you'll, you'll know that as soon as you start predicting that something's never going to happen, you're probably wrong. Uh, but second, one government policy. This is an example of a government policy. Had we not. Uh, had we not identified the rating agencies as uh, national statistical rating organizations, stamping their approval on something would not have been necessary in a way that would have alleviated you from responsibility. In other words, you wouldn't have been able to go to the rating agencies and say, hey, bless this so I can do more of it. So wrote, That's one policy. So That's just one.
0: I, I, it's so complicated. And we've got only so much time, but let, let, let's come back to what Dodd Frank did and sure. what we think we need to undo. They had they created some, uh, something created called FSOC, that's right, which is what the, the financial, financial Stability Oversight Council. That's it, and their job is to sit in a room and decide who's <laughs> too big
2: to fail and what to do about it if they do. That's pretty much it. They get to police the markets in general for uh, fina- threats to financial stability. And the statute never defines what financial stability is. Well, well, on is. the
0: face of it, though, it sounds good. sounds mean, great. So yeah. you,
2: what's the problem? Well, well the, the problem is twofold. Uh, one, you have too many regulators as it is. So you have all these different regulators with different incentives in different jurisdictions, and you've essentially put them all in a room together, and all they're going to do is fight. Second, the concept is wrong. The concept that we can come up with a set of rules and regulations where the government comes in and says, okay, everything's fine now. You, you guys set these little rules up and we'll never have another financial crisis is wrong. And it's wrong in the opposite direction. Meaning as soon as you do that, you give people a false sense of security and you give people less of an incentive to monitor what they're doing, to be careful that they don't lose and you make it more likely that you are going to lose. You make it more likely that you are going to have a meltdown. Uh, and the way Dodd Frank does this, you you actually we've actually given a lot of these companies a lifeline, even if they don't want it. Uh, so we've, in other words, we've enshrined a lot of the bailout policies that we saw in 2008.
0: So, so our view, your view, my view is that the market, people closest to the problem, at, at the lowest level. Possible are always going to be able to figure things out, and you want to disaggregate the risk rather than put them all in one uh, Definitely. one pile. And smart people sitting in a room, even though they may have 190 IQs, c- can never really predict right. the future. Oh, I mean, right. I, I remember talking to the people at Treasury about this during transition. I said, "If this model is that good, you ought to leave here and start a hedge fund because <laughs> 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 you could do great if you can predict the future this that's way." Right.
1: I mean, it's really part and parcel, whether it's financial services or energy or whatever. This idea that the government intervening into the market can somehow lead to a better outcome, it totally dismisses the reality that when you artificially, when you make something artificially attractive or artificially drive Mm -hmm. down the cost of something, that creates, that begins a chain of events that leads to bad outcomes. And it always has and always will. And, um, and there's no amount of smart people in a room who can come up with a system that manages all this, um, in an effective way. Right. It, they, they always miss something no matter how high their IQ is. And that's the beauty of the marketplace is you have these billions of interactions that occur between people all the time. And through that process, you ultimately get to the right answer. And when you subsidize and distort, you don't allow that natural process to unfold and the the ultimate result is the financial meltdown or, you know. It's harder
2: what, to find what works. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and one of the maddening things with Dodd-Frank is that you gave more power to the regulators that blessed a lot of the activity that we know, absolutely beyond the shadow of a doubt, was very risky. And they all blessed that it is not risky. Right.
1: And then that creates a huge liability for, for the, tax for the payer, tax taxpayer because as soon as the yeah. government says, that's okay, you do that, now you have the bailout and there's no way around it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the
0: other thing Dodd-Frank did, we have the financial, we have FSOC, it, they all, it's also been a real killer on commu- community banks. Sure. And we used to have three or 400 started every year, and now we've had like five in the last seven or eight years. Yeah. And community banks are the uh, prime source of credit to small and emerging businesses. And so if we wonder why the
1: economic growth is, is slow, that's one of the reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's one of the untold stories, of Dodd-Frank, is the impact not on Wall Street, but on community banks and something Norbert and I talk about all the time, urban communities who who are largely unbanked and who the market has figured out ways to provide access to capital, to loans, to checking, the basic banking services that we all take for granted that, you know, the, the big banks don't go into these communities. It's these other these other things, these other service these other companies who provide that service. And Dodd Frank takes that all away. Yeah. Uh,
0: well I, I think the other way to that I think about it is Dodd Frank has helped the big banks, the very very entities sure. that the the law is supposed to um, put constraints on and it's 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 hurt everyone else. Yeah. And the little banks, the little guys, the rest of the, you know, it's another reason Trump won is, you know, take a look at Dodd-Frank, Jamie Dimon and Lloyd Blankfein are, are claiming that it's been the best thing that's ever happened to them because right. it's hard for people to get into their business, can't right. comply
2: with it. No, that's right. And they're they're uh, they're against the repeal effort that's underway right now in the House. They don't support the Choice Act. And yet the Democrats say that well, this is some kind of giveaway. Uh, uh, choice the
0: Choice Act. We, 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 <laughs> we want to talk about the Choice uh, Act because we talked about, what it is, and we're now trying to undo pieces of it. What is the Choice Act?
2: The Choice Act is a a major, actually very broad financial reform bill uh, in the House, and it is likely to pass actually this very afternoon in the U.S. House of Representatives. This is a big day. Um, it touches on not just Dodd Frank, but the but the core of Dodd Frank is either completely repealed and were radically restructured under this bill. So it basically gets rid of FSOC. It turns it into nothing uh, but a toothless sort of information sharing group, which is actually what it was supposed to be originally. Uh, it gets rid of the orderly liquidation authority, which is something that keeps you out of bankruptcy but it's a government-funded bailout. That's what we would call it.
0: And we have bankruptcy laws which work pretty well. Exactly. Already.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and that would be the preferred approach, and that's what the Choice yeah. Act does. It uses bankruptcy. Uh, it radically restructures the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is one of the most out-of-control, unaccountable agencies we've ever had, and it is actually the one that is putting the, uh, the clamps on what really works well in a lot of the urban communities. Um, so it, it, it changes them into an enforcement agency. Um, we have many, many consumer protection laws before Dodd-Frank. And basically this, uh, the Choice Act would just sort of consolidate everything uh, underneath this, uh, the, the CFPB and give it a new mission so it wouldn't be able to make the rules uh, that, that do these damaging things. And there are, are also some other pieces of Dodd-Frank uh, that the Choice Act gets rid of but it also makes a lot of small business entrepreneurial capital uh, changes as well.
0: But the the House will pass it. Will the Senate pass it? Will Dodd will Dodd Frank then have this to contend with? Will Donald Trump sign the bill?
2: I uh, yes, no. <laughs> so the Senate will not pass the Choice Act. Okay. Uh, they won't get sixty votes, unfortunately. Uh, with Something that looks just like the Choice Act. So what's going to have to happen is the Senate is going to have to take up pieces of the Choice Act in a reconciliation process, and the that and that's a good thing because we can still get some some really good reforms done. But the bad thing is that the only thing that they can put in those reconciliation bills is something that has a budgetary impact. Mm-hmm. Um, but. The, the the core part of dodd frank the the choice addresses that i'm talking about here with mm-hmm. title one title two and cfpb uh, um, those things can likely be done in reconciliation and we won't know until they go forward with the process but it it looks like there's actually better than a 50 50 shot uh, that some of that happens and trump would sign that i believe
0: mm.
2: let's talk about tax reform
0: we've got much, it's much on everybody's mind. We've talked a little bit about Dodd-Frank, but I I think the tax reform actually seems like it might happen. Mm -hmm. And there's a, do one of you want to summarize what it is that's on the table and what, how you think the prospects might evolve?
1: I'll I'll give a quick summary, but Norbert, you can, you can follow up. Mm -hmm. There are basically, um, there are a couple of plans out there. The most robust plan is the one, uh, From the House, the Speaker and and Chairman uh, Brady from the House Ways and Means Committee, which they call the blueprint, which is a good plan. It reduces rates, gets corporate rates down to, I think, 20 percent, has full expensing, goes territorial. Um, Those are all the things that we want on the individual side. It um, reduces the number of brackets um, and it ends, for the most part, um, double taxation on savings and investment. All the things that we want. Now, there is the controversial border adjustment tax that um, is associated with that, and and um, that has its own set of issues associated with it. But by and large, we like that. We like the, the Brady plan. Then you have the tax, the, the Trump plan. The Trump plan is a, a big tax cut, um, it drives corporate rates down to 15%. Now, we would argue there should be no corporate rate, that's but right. if, if you're going from the highest in the world down to 15 that's pretty good. Um, the OECD average is twenty-ish, give or take. No, the lowest in the world is Ireland at twelve point five. So twelve point four would be awesome. Um, and now it doesn't have expensing. And it uh, has it, it has fewer individual rates. Drives the the individual individual rates up three. I think but, it's three brackets. But, right? but there's a zero, two, so kind of four. Oh, okay, okay. Um, so it's a it's a fine plan. The 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 problem i 'll call it a problem it 's not really a problem with it with the trump plan is that it 's a tax cut which makes which makes the legislative piece of it more challenging you need to do you probably need to do ta- good tax reform through reconciliation where you don 't have to get sixty votes in the senate Same the problem. The Brady plan um, is revenue neutral with the border adjustment tax now some of us don 't think within the context of the Brady plan we should pursue the Border adjustment tax, which means, and you need to think of more. Uh, need to think more about how to use the reconciliation vehicle to get that through. But we think that there are ways around that process. So that's sort of a, a rundown. Oh, then on the Senate side, you, you don't have really a plan yet, but the um, the basic ideas that seem to be emerging in the Senate is um, uh, focusing on 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 the corporate side. And we'll see what, what, what ends up there. Well, the, oh, the, corporate integration is the, what they The, the
0: reason The reason we care about all this stuff, and I would include Paris Treaty and, and uh, Dodd-Frank with this, is we care about economic growth. And both the Paris Treaty and Dodd-Frank, we think, are one of the reasons the economy is growing at such an anemic rate. Right. Which of these tax plans would, would, would
1: be the best? It sounds like the Brady plan would be, to me... The best one I wouldn't got. characterize one or the other as the best. I think that they are both actually would be both okay. very good, yeah. um, and I'll tell you why. I'm not. I'm not just. Tr- I'm not just straddling a fence here. I'll tell you where our tax experts believe we're going to get the most economic growth is out of the corporate side, and both plans um, are pretty good on the corporate side. On the Trump side, you have the lower rate, but you don't have expensing. On the Blueprint side, you have expensing. You still have a low rate, but not as low. Um, Both, I believe, are territorial. I know the Brady plan is. So those are the three things. So they're both good. But
0: so the the corporate side is, we like that. Why? Lower lower corporate tax rate makes us competitive with the rest of the world. Yes. It causes U.S. corporations to stay in the United States, and it makes it more attractive for multinationals outside the United States to come here.
1: Exactly.
0: And it also gives them more capital to reinvest in their business. Right. And I think this is going to be coupled with something about repatriating, something like $2 trillion of, of corporate profits that are overseas because, and yeah. stuck there because of the tax uh, situation.
1: Yeah, at a lower rate. So bring that over so, uh, as a one-time, a one-time yeah. repatriation. Would, would that make a big difference? Okay. I, 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 I don't know that it would. Um, yeah. And the reason is, is because our, our companies don't have a lack of capital. We have capital now. We want that money to come back in, but we want the market to determine that. And there's clearly a barrier now for that money to come back in. What we need is to reduce regulation. We need a we need a tax system that's simple and low and doesn't incentive it doesn't bias against investment. And if you do those things, then you start getting the capital being spent, and if and we'll bring that stuff back as we need it. And- do, do any of
0: these plans do anything about simplifying the tax code? I mean, I. Which one is? Oh
1: yeah,
2: I think I think all of them do uh, do simplify the tax code to a degree. Um, I don't know that we have enough specifics yet on the president's plan, but I mean, even if you just go from you know from from five brackets to three, that's that's helping. And if you're going to um, eliminate some stuff on the corporate side, that that's going to help. So, but I think we would need more specifics. Correct me if I'm wrong. I, I don't know. That My one. take
0: of most of it's small ball in terms of really yeah. simplifying things. I mean, one of the tasks I had in transition was to talk with the people at the IRS, and I asked them what would make what would make the IRS a lot more effective and, and make people happier about what the IRS is. And they said to every single one in the room, said if you could simplify the tax code, it would make lives better for everybody yeah. in this country. Yeah. When well, you've got billions of man hours, maybe that's an exaggeration, preparing or people hours, preparing taxes... And corporations, I mean, I don't know how much money they spend trying to avoid taxes. I mean, the nominal is 35%, but most of them, many of them don't pay any tax. And the actual rate after deductions is closer to 12 or 15%. Yeah.
2: After spending a whole lot of money, right? Yeah, so why don't you just lower the rate, get rid
0: of all the, all yeah. the junk, and
1: uh, get rid of all the well, tax lawyers and, and make them get a real job? I think that's what they're, that's what they're trying to do. Um, and I don't know that they get rid of all of the tax uh, loopholes that, that, that we might like, and there are some that are debatable, like how you treat interest, R&D tax credits, um, things like, you know, we, we administer a lot of welfare through the tax code, like the child tax credit and the earned income tax credit. Those are all debates that are going to unfold as more details of the plans um, emerge, and as the plans go from a plan to an actual piece of legislation, that'll all be part of the litigation that occurs as this unfolds. One of the frustrating things, I guess, about the whole thing is, look, I think most conservatives would like a straight, simple consumption tax, whether that's a Holrobushka-type thing that's administered through, similar to how we do now. Instead of an income tax or in mm -hmm. addition to? yeah, No, instead, most certainly instead. (laughs) Well, I'd be for it, but I I just... (laughs) Yeah. In case I wasn't clear, instead,
0: of. <laughs> you know, we're, 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 you know, we're we're, we're part of Washington D.C. You know what's going to happen.
1: You put a consumption tax in, and they'll say, "Well, we still really need the income." Yeah. Tax. Well, I mean, we yeah. So, so definitely instead, I mean, that's that's one of the criticisms of the border adjustment tax is that, though, as envisioned by Brady Ryan, it's not another tax. You take out the wage deduction, and then it is All a VAT. All of a sudden, you got, of a, of a sudden yeah. you got a VAT, and You're of so course, perfect. that's a big lift, but. You have the framework of that, and, and that's part of the debate and, that's unfolding right now.
2: And we've been careful over the last couple of years for sure, uh, especially now, to point out that the, what should be driving this debate is a set of principles, right? So we believe uh, that tax reform and limited government are the ways to get to economic growth. And you know, if, if you're going to have this tax system, the first thing you have to do is justify why we're taking so much money away from people in the first place. Um, you know, and Heritage has put out lots of different products. Uh, the Blueprint for Balance is one where we show how you can shave $10 trillion. We had over 10 years, $10 trillion in savings. Uh, that So that's that's money that you don't need to take away from people, and that's without touching entitlements. No, no, we touch entitlements. Or ours does. Okay. Ours does. Ours okay. does. Ours does. Well,
0: Heritage also has something else that many other think tanks don't have. You have a policy promotion piece where you actually are involved and talking with the legislatures day to day. could you describe how that interaction sure. works? And
2: uh, I, I, can, I can start that one. So all kinds of different ways. This morning was actually a great example, uh, sort of after the fact. So we mentioned the Choice Act is going to pass this afternoon. Uh, and this morning we had Chairman Henserling over from the House Financial Services. It's his bill. Uh, he came over to Heritage, and we had a newsmakers event. So the chairman came over and talked to journalists from all over. We had about 15 different journalists, you know, to make his pitch. So that's one minor way. But long before that, um, analysts at Heritage, such as in this case me, <laughs> work with uh, work with Capitol Hill staff uh, on House Financial Services more than any other committee. Right on, on this one, um, we we talk about where where we want them to go. We talk about what conservative principles in financial markets would look like. Um, we. and and, and interact with them by asking them where they want to go and where they think they can go and how can we help put out the principles uh, that can help you make your case. And and that's what we want. Uh, So uh, if you you look through the Dodd-Frank book that you mentioned, uh, you'll see that a lot of those ideas are actually reflected in the Choice Act. So we don't write the legislation. That's not our job. Uh, But we do provide a lot of the, the backing for that. Uh, and, and when they have hearings on how they want to put their bill together, uh, sometimes we get to testify and make our case on narrow issues at those hearings. Uh, I've done that too. Uh, and basically we maintain a, a good relationship with the staff of the relevant committee, um, and, 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 and are able to provide them with the intellectual firepower that they need to fight off the people who don't want to make reforms.
0: When you're working in the House or Senate, you don't have much time to reflect and think about <laughs> what great policy is.
2: No. It's very transactional. That's right. That's right. That's but right.
1: if, when we, when, if we're doing our job correctly, we will have done that intellectual foundation building well beforehand so that as these debates unfold, yeah. we're able to provide the derivative products that go straight after right. where the debate is. And Norbert used the word in there, it's relationships. One of the things that makes Heritage different is that we have – as a we have departments who develop relationships in the media on the Hill in the executive branch. You know, you mentioned the transition. We were, you know, a bunch of us were in the transition, and those are relationships that still today are helping us understand where the debate is, not just where it's unfolding, but what are the issues that we need to be hitting on as these discussions are happening in the Oval Office or wherever they're happening. And we're able then to use our outreach to develop products and lines of argument that fit right into where that debate is unfolding behind closed doors. Well, that brings me to the
0: the final topic today, which is talking about Trump's plan to reorganize the government. And he put out to get a proposal, basically, sort of an RFP, saying, would people give us your ideas? Seems to me like heritage touches more pieces of the government than almost any other think tank. I think every, any other think tank. I don't have to qualify it. Uh, what is, what's at stake here? What, what's he asking for and what are the elements
1: of it? And what do you, what do you see as a possible, uh, good outcome from this? There's a lot at stake. Um, what the president asked for, well, like you said, he asked all of his agencies to look at, um, and to come up with plans that get rid of duplication, things the government shouldn't be doing, what can be cut, that sort of stuff. Um, what we took was, um, look, the the agencies are probably not going to do as good a job as we would like them to do. And because of those relationships, we know that there are folks who would like to see a good conservative plan. So we're going to put together that good conservative plan. In fact, I have it on my desk right now. I'm reading through it. and It's about this thick, and it goes through all the agencies and all the bureaus and gives good concrete um, uh, recommendations to do precisely what that executive order asked to do. So what's at stake is this is our opportunity to reshape the government to better meet what to better serve the American people to be a conservative government. And I don't know if we'll be able to get everything that we recommend in there, but we're making the effort, and we're going to make it difficult for them not to make real reform. Well, but what are the what are the what are the key elements of this? I think
0: I think we've I think we've talked in the past about we've got something like 40 Five different training programs throughout the federal government that ought to be consolidated uh, into one that might be effective because nothing we've got right now really is. And or we've or got no, do we have agencies we want to have eliminated? Do we want to is this just fire everybody? I mean, what's the no, uh,
1: no we 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 bring a logic first. to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say <laughs> the, re- the reason you bring the 45 agencies under one is because it's easy to kill one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, job training is a great example. That's something that makes people feel good. Democrats and Republicans tend to support it, but it doesn't work. Evidence, it never, evidence it never yields. shows that it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, but to answer your question, what we do is we – each of our analysts look at the agencies for which they are responsible for and basically ask the questions, should the government be doing this? Um, can it be better – is it is it done elsewhere in the government? And can it be better – can this service be better provided by state, local, or private entities – and we make our re- recommendations based on that. And it, they, there's both a um, a size of government piece to it and a cost piece to it. Yeah, and it, it varies. I mean, one of the, I, I think one of the advantages we have
2: is that we have so many analysts in so many different areas that they know their agencies that impact their issues. Again, coming back to me for finance, uh, mine's kind of easy. Uh, you know, you, you don't need seven banking regulators <laughs> So that's, that's an easy way to consolidate things, uh, streamline things.
0: Okay, if, today we have seven banking regulators. Well,
2: okay, so technically that's not I, – I misspoke technically. Uh, you have – if you're a bank, you have seven different federal regulators that could come in and give you uh, a, a whole set of rules that you have to follow. So right. uh, you've got – but but just, just banking. You've got the Federal Reserve. You've got the Comptroller. You've got the FDIC uh, that are all uh, – Strictly speaking, banking regulators, all three are federal banking regulators. And there's no really, there's no reason that you need to So part of your proposal might be let's let's combine this into one or two or whatever. Right. Let's have one banking regulator. Let's have one capital markets regulator instead of two. There's no reason to have both the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. They're both regulating capital markets. We can consolidate them. Then you get rid of the overlapping authority. Uh, when you go to something like, and, and that's the five, by the way, uh, the, the, that's five right there, uh, that if you're a, a unified bank and you have a broker-dealer in your bank, you've got all five, before we even get into some of the others, um, that, that deal with the Volcker Rule. So that's, And that's another great example. That's a rule that Dodd-Frank uh, put on, onto the banks, and all five regulators had to have their say, and it took over a year to come up with a 1,000-page rule because you have all these competing interests and, and overlapping authorities and everybody trying to come up with their little slice of the pie, and it ends up being a disaster.
0: And this is going to be managed or driven by the Mike Mick
1: Mulvaney at uh, OMB? Yeah. Yes, yeah, so he's the one who's doing this, and, and that's our audience for this. I mean, it, it, our work will be publicly available, but we are writing it knowing yeah. what they want and what they think w- w- would be helpful.
0: Uh, any coming preview of coming attractions? What do you think you'll be recommending?
1: Um, for example, the Department of—this um, th- is just an example. The, the Department of Agriculture has a whole lot of um, insurance programs to protect farmers against um, commodity losses um, or uh, crop losses, prices, all of these things that are just odd. Free markers, and so we 'll be recommending to get rid of a lot of a lot of those things in the Department of Energy, which is really my um, my strength we 're recommending to get rid of all of the programs that um, advance commercialization that the government is saying we want this thing to be commercially viable, so here 's a program to do it. We just think that doesn 't work, and really focusing um, the Department of Energy more on. Basic science and basic research sorts of activities, but we have we have recommendations in there on personnel, on um, on federal um, law enforcement agencies. There's a lot of overlap there, so really it's a, it's going to be a comprehensive look at at all of these things. We'll be we'll be publishing the first piece of this um, in mid June in a couple of weeks, and then we'll be publishing a larger version. Um, In the late summer, early fall, which both of those time frames are consistent with what OMB needs at those particular points in time. Is there any way to get any bipartisan
0: support for this? I don't know. Um,
1: that's going to be I, tough. I'll
2: say no. <laughs> it's going to be tough. <laughs> I, I mean, if we if we define it as you know, I can I've, get
0: sixty I've, I've, votes in you know, the Senate. This show is called Common Ground, and, yeah. and and I've been I've been thinking about this issue, and I'm wondering if there is any.
1: Yeah, I, I will say there is an opportunity to be optimistic. It's certainly in the spirit of the show. <laughs> Congress has, in the past, passed legislation giving presidents the authority to reorganize the government, and there's. It would seem to me that there would be a negotiated set of conditions that would allow that to happen again. It, it's not outside the realm of what has been sort of traditionally done in the past. There are other things that can drive this. We have a debt ceiling debate coming up. Maybe we, you can get some of this done in that. You have a budget coming up. This is going to inform the budget process. So there are in 2018. So there are opportunities to drive some bipartisanship. Um, and you do have 10,
2: and I'll, I'll, so I'll backtrack on my own a little bit, too. You, you do so have, you're going
0: to be optimistic for a change? Just a little, just okay. a little.
2: You, you, have 10, you have 10 U.S. Senate seats uh, on, on the Democrat side right now who are in states that Trump won. Okay, and they'd like to get reelected, and they would like to get reelected. So you, you do have that as well. I mean, that is that is a real political uh, set of incentives, and that could drive some deals because congressmen do love to make deals. So,
1: so one of the chapters of the of the product is going to go through how these sorts of things have happened before and how they might how they might happen again. One of the ideas is to have a um, a commission, who a bipartisan commission, who's charged with coming up with a series of cuts and, and reorganization plans that um, Congress would give an up or down vote, kind of like the base realignment and closure process. Uh, so when is this coming out, and where can we find it? The, um, the first part of this, which is going to be geared towards the agencies, will be out in mid-June sometime. We don't have an exact date, but around June 15th. And it will be available on the Heritage website, and folks who get our emails. I'm sure it'll be part of that. And, um, and it'll be part of the public record because I suspect and I'll recommend that we we um, submit it as an official recommendation to OMB. Great. Well, Jack, thank you. Norbert, thank you. Thanks,
0: Bill. Thank Interesting you Interesting discussion. And uh, we plan to continue this going forward. And thanks for joining us at Common Ground. And we'll talk with you next time. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe to Common Ground with Bill Walton on iTunes.
2: Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites. Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to amazon.com slash apply. That's amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.